Welcome to After Hours at the Radio Book Club, which is a podcast, a collaboration between KGMU and the Boulder Bookstore. And we are here live at the bookstore with Erica Worth talking about White Horse, which is fantastic horror novel it's a thriller there's so much in there but it's it's very uh, colorado based there's so many wonderful references to denver idaho springs and other places but right now we are uh, going to be asking questions from the audience of erica so arson do you want to go ahead and ask sure, the first question um we're going to dive in the deep end right away here what are your thoughts on white people writing stories that include indigenous culture this is hilarious because if you know the AWP Writers Program, I did that for years before I started becoming more of a horror writer. And every single panel, it was on poetics, horror, speculative, every single panel. Five white people, no offense, would be like, can I write about Indians? Can you give me that permission, please? And somehow people would get my email and they'd be like, can I write about Indians? Can I? And I. I'd be like, why am I, is it just that I'm not famous and I think they can, and so the thing is like, what I would always say is, well, at the AWB panels, I would just say, I, this is not what this panel's about, so no questions about that. Um, so I could be that jerk. But what I would say is I would email back and I would say, hey, um, maybe you, you need to ask yourself why you want to do this. Do you support other native writers? Do you support indigenous writers? Have you read just about everyone from N. Scott Mamaday to Louis Erdrich to Brandon Hobson. Um, also, personally, I don't even write about the res. I don't, unless I have some characters, you know, from reservations, because I'm native, and so a lot of us are from the res. Um, so the idea of being like, I'm gonna write about a group of people I don't know, didn't grow up with, don't know anything about, um, but read about, but are neat, just, does not appeal to me and also it's a craft issue it's not even a political issue like i am why do i write about colorado because you know it fills in the details better it makes it better art um and so i see myself writing about a 500 mile radius so um i think if you like my friend amy carr grew up she's white and she grew up on the edge of an anishinaabe reservation if she were to write a novel someday and not in that area set in that area and not include niche people, that would be weird. But she would never write it from the point of view of an Anishinaabe because it would be rude and bad art, They're just bad art. And so um, I guess every time I would email that back, they'd be like, I'm sorry, you're so angry, you're angry. And I'd be like, yes, I guess I'm very, mm, you know. So that would be the thing I, I would say, what, you know, I'll do that checklist and at the end of it, if you're like, I, you know, no, then maybe not for you. Okay, well, somebody wants to know, what do you miss most about living in Idaho Springs? I grew up right outside. I grew up like, here's Denver, Evergreen, Idaho Springs, and I grew up like in the mountains. And so, um, but I did love, even though I was a tremendous dork and <laughs> had very few friends, um, I was more of a loner even than a nerd. Um, but I did kind of enjoy, um, you know, running around town with my, my best friend, Misty. You know, she was this tough native chick and she was like five by five. And, you know, she was like gonna tell you what you think and she's gonna hit on you. And, you know, she was just really tough and I kind of had fun with her. And, you know, we'd go home to her trailer and we'd talk about, you know, stupid things. And we'd, we'd, we'd read Stephen King because everyone was reading Stephen King. And I hate it when people say that poor folks or natives don't read because everyone where I came from was reading Stephen King and they were reading. 
Um, and what I miss about growing up, you know, in the country was it was very peaceful and it was very beautiful. Of course, now there's the internet, so that would have connected me to the outside world with all the good and bad things. So how does your voice as an indigenous woman bring a different voice to the horror genre? I think that we're kind of new to it. Like I said, there's Stephen Graham Jones, V Castro, uh, Shane Hawk, and me in terms of adult f horror. And I think that in many ways, we were tropes, right? We were the bad guys, which would almost take over the good guys, because the good guys are like, I'm a shaman and I'm here to solve your spiritual issues. And it's like, oh, yeah, creepy. Um, so I take almost bad guy over good guy. But I think what's nice is we're now getting to be ourselves and we're getting to show, you know, how diverse we are. And it also, like I said, I think that there's a way in which horror does allow you to kind of like process these darker past like boarding school issues or my grandmother went to a day school because she was urban and so it allows us to process these darker things in our past. Okay, someone wants to know, as a teacher, I always ask any advice for student writers? Yes, um, <laughs> I lecture on this a lot because I think that I really believe in sharing knowledge and I hate it when writers are like, gosh, I just became a writer, I don't know how, I guess I'm a genius. I'm like, you're either very privileged or you worked really hard. <laughs> and I had a more privilege than my parents, that's for sure, um, but I also worked really hard. And one of the things I really, really wish um, was that um, we had talked a little bit about A, what were alternatives to academia and grad school. You can write kids books, you can write, you can be a social media manager, you can do those things. Academia can be really brutal, it can send you to the ends of the earth for a long time <laughs> if you even get the tenure track job. Um, and you do need to go to those workshops, those residencies, those conferences. You absolutely do need to go to those freaking things and network and at least meet some cool people and get those things on your resume. And yes, you do need to think about structure. You do need to read Save the Cat Writes a Novel. People make fun of it, they should not. You should read it, you should go to the beat sheet chapter and just see what the basic beats are before you decide, I'm an artist and I'm just gonna write words. And then like, honestly, you know, and then, you know, Chuck Wendig's Damn Fine Story, Ben Percy's Thrill Me, Jane Cleland's um, Mastering Suspense Structure and Plot. Read those books. All right, I got one. Then probably good that you have a PhD for this one. Can you talk about the subjectivity of the word realism? How does mainstream America's reality and supernatural differ than indigenous reality? That was always tough because I feel like you know, people are like, I feel like a lot of natives and also BIPOC people, um, because of the magical realism tradition that arose in the 80s and became popular in the 90s, it always had to be like, well, you know, magic is gone with white people, but you incredibly cool, you know, almost primitive people believe in magic still. Tell, write about it. Write about it. And tell us your authentic magical experience. And I just always felt gross. And it's part of why I never was interested in magical realism. I was like, you know what? My life is very real. <laughs> you know, I don't go flying because I'm Native American. It's not like I'm like, to the, you know, and, um, you know, there are, of course, traditional life ways that every ethnic group has that wouldn't fit in with any contemporary um, sensibility. Um, so I kind of wasn't interested in that. And I think that um, there are always Native people or people who are like, 
compelled to be like make that authentic kind of answer right and i just don't i'm not comfortable with it i think it has more to do with um you know our 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 basic like we weren't judeo-christian right so there wasn't this like bifurcated idea of if you're good in this life you'll go to this completely different life and and be rewarded i think it was more like you know you have to be good in this life because your cousin will kick your ass you know <laughs> and then on top of it think about it how will your children feel about you how will those children feel about you what what world are you you know what i mean so and of course we had different we had the there's a i forgot there's a mexican indian vampire i forgot what her name is um, so we had these kinds of things, right? We had mythologies, but so did pagan Europe. You know, it had these kinds of mythologies. So I don't know. Another question about magic realism. Realism and magic build as horror. Would you call this magic realism? And why or why not? What is the threshold? Well, and going back to the whole realism thing, the only reason I use it is because I don't like the term literary as a genre. It's not a genre. It's not a genre. It's a series of conventions that can be applied to any genre. As far as magical realism goes, I think what's interesting about the history of it is that magical realism became, again, this kind of thing that I was uncomfortable with. And then people would talk about slipstream. And it just meant like, I'm a postmodern writer of speculative fiction. And now we have speculative fiction, which just means horror, science fiction, and fantasy. But some people mean it to mean those things, but elevated. Um, and so. <sighs> You know, I think what they are is they're, they're scholarly terms and they are useful, um, but they're still just like one part of the equation. So I don't even think that answered the question, but yeah. <laughs> you were speaking words. It's a podcast. That was great. Um, we're going we're gonna, to um, get a little simpler here. Where is your favorite place to write? You know, I used to be, it's, I am the office writer. I used to be, when I lived here, I, you know, spent a lot of my time alone and in my house and so, and then teaching or taking classes. And so I would, I was younger. So I would go from my apartment on Goss, Goss Grove and I would walk all the way downtown and I would um, write in the Trident. That's where I would wrote. That's where I wrote a bunch of manuscripts and probably very early drafts of what became White Horse, right? Um, and then I would probably go to the scum downer or the sun downer and then I'd have beer. And there were times in which I barfed in those little trash cans on the way home and I'm very embarrassed to admit it, but obviously not so embarrassed that I'm not saying it. So, <laughs> and I was a night writer, which is also an awesome show from the eighties that I was like, I love it, you know. Um, but now I'm kind of more of a morning writer and I like to write in my office and with my dogs and in there and you know, by my window. And, and so I've become very much old farty in this regard. Okay, so what are your thoughts on building a sense of dread with your horror writing? How do you decide what to show and what to withhold from the reader? That is actually the best question and I'll tell you why. Because you know when you're a poet and you wanna be funny on the page and it's really hard, it's like that. And so it took me drafts to get to and one of the my agent actually had somebody read it um, who kind of writes for Hollywood and she was like, it's not scary. And a lot of their arguments about that in horror, but I did want to have at least elements of dread and fear and scare and scariness because, you know, as Stephen King said, as someone else said, I forgot he wrote this in the beginning of an anthology. This is the one genre that revolves around an emotion, which is fear. And I kind of wanted to accomplish that. And so I had to ask myself extremely concrete, hard questions like what, scares me and honestly since film is so good and immediate when it comes to horror 
I did read, of course, a ton of horror fiction, which I still love, um, but I took notes. I literally was like, why am I scared and how are they building that tension? What are they doing first? What are they doing next? What are they doing after? What actually scared me? And I know that's kind of boring, but at the same time, you have to be kind of a mechanic rather than just like, I'm driving the shiny car when you're a writer. So, you know, I thought it was interesting in the book. Um, you're not sure Carrie's Carrie is scared or worried or anxious at different times, but through different things. So as the reader, you're not sure, am I supposed to fear Debbie's husband somehow? Am I supposed to fear, uh, Carrie's grandfather am I supposed to fear this this vision she's having because somehow that's going to become real like so you have the sense of dread but you're not quite sure where the shock is going to come from is how I felt yeah I think and I think that's that's a great part of horror fiction is it can do it can do both things right it can give you kind of give you a jump scare or it can give you a sense of like terror around my god what if a ghost did appear in my life right and what would that look like but also what is it what are the what are the people around how do the people around me scare me and yeah carrie i think um debbie's husband is 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 good in that way precisely because he actually isn't a terrible guy he just has really stupid shit in his head and it takes the main characters you know it takes debbie absolutely tearing they're like being willing to tear the lives apart for him to even say i might change and that is scary mm -hmm. so the next question i have is um i would love to hear more about how urban indian culture is different or unique so we totally talked about some of this in the radio interview but is there a bit more that you might want to add from what we had talked about earlier yeah i mean i think that look you know it's not entirely separate from reservation culture. In fact, heavy metal would be one of the big commonalities um, that we have. And, you know, again, like caring about our traditions, language, spirituality, our land. Um, there is land, there's actually land that's being threatened that is technically um, held in trust for native people in Douglas County. And in Canada, that's actually much more common. And so there, in my opinion, there need to be more like lands allotted for urban Indians. Um, but I think the thing with reservations, right, is they have to be protected because this is ground zero for protecting language and land and culture. And those things really matter in terms of who we are. Um, and at the same time, I do think there needs to be more attention to, um, again, the sort of powwow Native American church conglomeration of Mexican Indian and often Southeastern Indian, which is now Oklahoma Indian culture that has evolved in the cities, which is, you know, people always talk about pan-Indianism as a bad thing and why they talk about it that way is because it can be kind of like flattened out and, you know, like I'm gonna wear this headdress and be a shaman, right? And it's like, oh, that's not, that has nothing to do with us. It's a bastardization of who we are. But what I like about pan-Indian culture is that it kind of pulls from different traditions and everyone kind of like, they teach each other, you know, you know, parts of their languages. Like I know bits of Diné Bazad, I know bits of Lakota, I know bits of, you know, bits and pieces of my own languages now. And so, and I, I learned that back home, you know, without even knowing it. I mean, you talk, you know, the book White Horse, and you were talking earlier about how that was a real gathering place for urban India as people come to Denver for the powwows. There, I think, is it the Four Winds Center? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you referenced that in the book as well, but I remember going there to meet people around the Columbus Day protest years ago when they were really kicking off in Denver. 
so it seems like there are certain gathering places, whether they're informal, like a bar or more formalized as well. Is Denver unique in that in terms of having those spaces? I think Denver is a little unique in general in that regard. But at the same time, it's not entirely, like I said, unlike Chicago, Winnipeg, L.A., Minneapolis, where um, there's this it's because of the location people have like gathered. But the reason why Denver is a little bit more unique, I would say, is because Right here you have the Dakotas and really Denver is where you want to go to get a job. You can get one in Rapid, but there are more jobs here and it's only a few hours away. That's how my boyfriend's family ended up here. Oklahoma's not that far away and it's there's just no way around it. It's racist. And so, you know, you want to come here or you want to come to Santa Fe or Albuquerque. You're, there aren't, Albuquerque has a slow economy. So you don't want to go there and you're, you're Diné or you're Apache or you're Pueblo. You're going to end up here. Do you know how many people of Pueblo descent are in Denver and have been here historically? Like Kali Fajada Onstein's family? They have been here. They're Pueblo. And they have been here, I, I forgot what how many generations. And I, she is one of many people I met like this. And they are, there is, this is not a word I mean in a bad way. They're disconnected from those Pueblos, but they have each other. And why is that bad? You know, they could revitalize the language here if they wanted, have a area annexed as a, you know what I mean? So I, I kind of feel like, I don't feel that we have to be disconnected or, you know, that it's that it's an inferior thing, as long as we understand that our job is still also to protect reservation land, to understand that people in those territories are often quite vulnerable and that it is also our job to help them. So. Okay, well, getting back to the questions from the audience, what will fans of Whitehorse recognize and what will they be surprised by in your next work? Oh, well, as is obvious, this is kind of an homage to old Denver, um, but Flatiron just bought the new novel. It's not official yet, but it's it's going to be, and it's called Room 904. And so this is kind of an homage to new Denver. There's a, a section in Meow Wolf where I did a room. It always sounds impressive. Like people will be like, oh, she wrote five novels and she was on Good Morning America. And people are like, uh-huh. And then people are like, she did a room in Meow Wolf Denver. And people are like, what? You know, um, I'm like... You know, but there's a room, there's a section in, um, you know, um, Meow Wolf, um, there's a section in the Brown Palace, which I guess is kind of old Denver, but essentially um, it's about a woman who's, you know, she was getting her PhD, so it's very different from Carrie. She's kind of sarcastic, but she's a little more millennial. Um, she's getting her PhD in psychology. Her sister was in and out of rehab. She's doing better. She calls her when she's on graduation night. It's like, You're, I'm in trouble, come to the Brown Palace. And the main character is like, I'm drunk. It's my graduation for my PhD. You come here. And her sister suicides. But when she appears to her that night, her sort of powers are turned on. Something that, like me, she never had. Her mom believed in, her sister believed in, she didn't. And her academic life falls apart. And so she's forced to kind of turn to these powers and make a living. And she lives with, with her gay best friend, who's her platonic, basically, husband. Um, and she's called into the Brown Palace because they're like, we need you to investigate these murders. Every nine years, two women check in. They, they seem to suicide or be somehow after three weeks apart. She, she sees that um, the original ghost has been replaced by her sister. She's like, no way. Then her mom checks in and she knows her mom has three weeks to live unless she solves this murder, so. Wow. Well, we're looking forward to that. We gotta book you right away. That sounds great. Um, I wanted to ask you, this is my question, but uh, so we're seeing, I feel like over the last 10, 15 years, we're seeing more 
uh, Indian writers. You know, it's not just Louise Erdrich right now, um, Scott Mamaday, who you mentioned. And recently, you know, we had um, Tommy Orange not too long ago. Uh, kind of almost the same time this book came out, uh, Morgan Talty had a book out that I'm reading that I'm really enjoying. So I guess I want to ask you, is it, are, are things opening up, do you think, for Indian writers? And how much more is out there that we're still not seeing? You know, like, like where are we on, on, on the opportunity to hear these stories? For 20 years and for the last five especially, I have done every single thing that I could with my tiny microphone at the time to make sure there would never be just one Indian that everyone went to just because they were the most authentic Indian. That was icky. And I, it's not good for anybody. It's not good for native people. We are from, we are black natives, Latinx natives. Some folks are from res. Some folks are very working class from the city. There are natives from every type of aesthetic, um, genre tradition and personal tradition. Morgan and I share an agent, actually, he referred her to me. And um, Stephen Graham Jones is just this wonderfully wacky guy. I, I just, with wonderfully wacky literature, and that makes it sound like I'm diminishing it, but I just mean like it's quirky and weird, and I love that. And I want there to be, I've written countless articles. I, it's wonderful if you read my work, but if, you, if you're curious about other native writers, Google my name and BuzzFeed or LitHub, and you'll see that I have done everything I can to lift a lot of people up at once. That is how my mother raised me. And um, I, I I think that what happened when Alexi kind of fell, although people are trying to prop him up again, um, was that people thought like the singular torch was going to be handed to Tommy Orange. And I just, look, I like Tommy a lot and I'm glad his book's in the world, but I, I want it to be lots at once and I want it to continue that way. That's, that's, people need to come to our literature because we're fun writers, not because they're like, give me an authentic history about your authentic people and show me how authentic you are, as if we're like a bracelet to be like, you know what I mean, assessed in that regard. So I wanted that to never, never be the case again. Well, Morgan, Morgan did an interview with the New York Times Book Review podcast, and he talked about how, you know, and we've talked some just today, about Indian culture is not some monolithic thing. There's hundreds and hundreds of different ways to be an Indian, or thousands of ways, or whatever. And and so there's other voices that you haven't heard. Some tribes have never had a, a fiction book out by anybody who's in that tribe. And so it really makes me wonder, like, how much more can there be? It feels like, you know, I'm the buyer here at the store, and it feels like there is more available than there was 10, 20 years ago. But I just wonder if 10 years from now, I'll be like, boy, we were just scratching the surface. There's 10 times more. I think that's that's coming. And I love Morgan because, you know, he's from a res and he's never like, I'm so authentic. He's just like, Morgan, I'm a weird guy. I write short stories. And I love him for that. I love him for that. And I, I will break myself so that that is true. I'm not kidding. I would rather never write a book again if that guaranteed that that would happen, that there would be... 50 times what we've got now. Okay, so I've got a few questions on one card. Some of them you've answered, but what are you reading right now? Oh my God, so many good books. Okay, first of all, I do love Silvia Moreno-Garcia. I know people are probably tired of talking about Mexican Gotham, but I love that book so much. I hope people read Ring Shout um, by P. DeJelly Clark. It's brilliant. He's a fantasy writer. He did a horror novella. It's brilliant. I truly would read anything by Grady Hendrix to the point where if you wrote a book like every three months, I would just read Grady Hendrix until one of us was dead. 
Um, so I'm glad he doesn't do that. <laughs> He's such a nice guy. He's stylish too. Um, I love anything by Stephen Graham Jones. Brandon Hobson and Kelly Jo Ford are two beautiful realism writers in the native literary tradition. V. Castro is like a Mexican indigenous lady. Um, the Haunting of Alejandra, just get ready for that book. That is going to blow you up. Um, uh, my friend um, Chuck Wendig, he's just a great writer and a great person and a weirdo. Um, and um, Cynthia Palayo is a Puerto Rican um, crime writer and horror writer, and just she's she's just knocking it out of the park with every every new book. So I'm I'm, I'm that's what I'm reading. I've got one kind of somewhat similar adding to this. I enjoy reading books that challenge my worldviews. Do you have any books that changed your perspective? You know, the problem when you're a creative writing professor is you're like. Wow, I've been reading for 40 years. I think they all do that. Uh, um, you know, yeah, lots of them did. Um, you know, I think that... I know he's kind of a jerk, but um, Dan Simmons with the Hyperion series, I know it's science fiction. I don't listen to him on the internet. Just don't do that. He's like uh, so many writers where you're like, don't speak. <laughs> um, just write. But I'm not sure what it did was, was literally make my head, and I've read science fiction all my life, but really make, it's on that science fiction fantasy, like, you know, liminal space. There's an academic word for you. And it just, and it has a horror element too, right? And it, it literally made me think about, and Star Trek does it too, but you know, what will life be like for human beings if we make it through um, the next selection? Um, <laughs> um, a thousand years from now, 5,000 years from now. And I think that my head really started doing that after I read Dan Simmons. And also it started to be like, this is the power of speculative literature, which is its real power is, um, in world building, right? And building such a unique and compulsive world that that, that killed me. He killed me. I, I wait to read him. I've, I've like read his, his trilogy and I'm gonna wait to read it again just so I can have the most space in between so I can enjoy it the most again. Like that's how much I love him, but no Facebook. Speaking of uh, building worlds, tell us about your work at Meow Wolf at the room that you built there. I, I love Meow Wolf and I, um, they started in Santa Fe, as you know, and now they're in like two places in Texas and they're in um, Las Vegas and they still belong there. <laughs> but Denver, the Convergence Station in Denver is a, they learned their lesson with Santa Fe. They did not, they weren't particularly inclusive um, and they really learned their lesson and they listened to people and they had a lot of people demanding that. And so in Denver, you have, you know, um, several indigenous and from different indigenous traditions, number of Mexican indigenous people. There's a guy named Volderan, or he calls himself Volderan. He's brilliant, okay? His, if you go in there, find the wall with all of his masks. They're all these Mayan and Mexica gods and goddesses, and they are, they're like, they're talk about realism and not realism at the same time. They are people that you could see walking the streets, but at the same time, they're absolutely fantastical, and I just adore him. My room, what I wanted to do is there's a woman of Anishinaabe descent named Grace Dillon, and she pioneered very respectfully from Afro-futurism, um, indigenous futurism. She works on games, 
and um, so does her daughter actually. And she um, talked about this concept of like what happens when you put indigenous people in the future. And I think that I was extremely inspired by that because when you say Native American science fiction, you break people's brains and you make them unable to put us in the past in this kind of silly, you know, simplistic way. And so with the room, I wanted to have it kind of be neat. I wanted, my dad was an aerospace engineer, and so I, I loved that stuff. And so I wanted it to be like this idea that the natives of, in Colorado were offered an opportunity when colonization first began to go to another world. And in that world, um, you know, in some worlds, the vegetation is different colors. So in this world, it's red, because I thought, you know, red, red power, cool. And so um, I had I was paired with a um, Theron Zimmerman, who's a, a visual artist, and they did um, all the visuals. And basically, it's like this. I did all these. I looked up a lot of um, indigenous, contemporary indigenous architecture. So, so they did that. They did the three sisters. If you know what that is, it's bean squash and. Uh, corn and they all grew together and a lot of native people did this and then it's this idea of this like advanced futuristic society native society somewhere else that's still in danger and then i had myself as a character on this world i had stephen graham jones being like hi i'm stephen graham jones i'm floating head above denver and just talking about you know <laughs> you know contemporary native stuff he actually had to see it for the first time the other day and he freaked out but um he was like oh you could tell he's like i hate it you know because you have to see yourself as a floating head above denver and then i had my cousin who's cheyenne and talk about the sand creek massacre because a lot of his ancestors had had died in that area so i wanted to do like you know contemporary futuristic and um um in the past, I wanted to do it all together in one little room. Okay, well, last question from my cards. How has being partnered with another writer changed or informed your writing, and how are you affecting his writing? Well, David would be like, uh, you did not affect me at all. I'm just good. No. <laughs> um, I don't understand. I, I, I don't understand people like, oh, I can't, I couldn't be with another writer. And I'm like, I can't imagine someone putting up with my ridiculous writer obsessions this much and like Dave and I get to be like yeah she was such a jerk on Facebook I know and so we get to like you know talk about that stuff where I get to be like I was rejected by this or I didn't get that and I feel like we have a good relationship that way and honestly what was great for me getting to know him was he was he's a, he has a background as a lawyer even though he's a political scientist he has a PhD in political science he has an MFA and he was just getting his start as a writer so it was a reboot for me and I saw him apply to all of these residencies and workshops which I'd been like I don't want to do that and it really helped his career so that was like oh and then he was saying like because he was kind of the beginning like i'm a thriller writer i want to be literary too but i want people to have a propulsive read and i want to learn about structure and i kept saying i don't feel like i understand structure and story and he was like well here are these more nuts and bolts books and they're not fancy but they're going to teach you about that and so i think what i do for him is i you know, I've introduced him to people, and I've also, I've looked at his work, and I've been like, well, this character could be fleshed out, or this this sentence could be polished a bit. And I just give him another perspective, I think, as a, another indigenous writer. Okay. Yeah. Wow, we covered so much. Awesome questions, everyone, and fantastic answers. Eric Worth has been our guest at After Hours at the Radio Book Club, a podcast that's a collaboration between KGNU and the Boulder Bookstore. We're here live at the Boulder Bookstore with Eric Worth. Check out the other podcast the broadcast edition where we talk more about white horse because what a book and i can't wait for the next one now when any dates any i think it was early 2024 see you then erica thank you so much and thanks everyone for tuning thank in thank you <laughs> thanks all